Uh, good afternoon. It is a good afternoon. We've been waiting for this day uh, for a very long time. Um, I'm Luke Powery, Dean of the Chapel here. And on behalf of the entire uh, Duke University Chapel staff, welcome to what James B. Duke called the Great Towering Church. Um, today is a part of what we've been calling a year of celebration. The chapel, as you know, was closed um, for a year, reopened last May. And so we've been doing special events all throughout the year, focusing on areas of our ministry, music, community outreach, interfaith engagement, and today, preaching, a celebration of preaching. In a couple years ago, Huffington Post called Duke Chapel the most spiritual place in North Carolina. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but historically, um, Duke Chapel has been known to be one of America's pulpits, where there have been a multiplicity of voices from a variety of traditions, uh, theologians, um, scholars, community activists from across denominational traditions, race, etc., class. And so what we want to do today is really celebrate the gift of preaching. Historically, in Duke's, in James B. Duke's indenture of trust, he says, I advise that the courses at this institution be arranged with special reference to the training of preachers, teachers, lawyers, and physicians, because these are the most in the public eye and by precept and example can do most to uplift mankind. So the accentuation on preaching has a deep root here at this university, and so a part of what we're doing today is highlighting that. And our theme for today is many voices, one gospel. And so what you will hear throughout the day are a multiplicity of voices. In this session, we begin to think about the history of preaching, the rich tradition of preaching here at Duke Chapel. Um, and later it, at 2.30, we will talk about, have a conversation about teaching preaching and preaching today from multiple voices, other special guests. At 4.15, after a break, there will be the conversation with some students and an alum, along with one of our other special guests, about the relationship between spoken word and hip-hop and preaching. So the movement is from past, present, future. And then we close at 6 p.m. with our choral vesper service, this time embodying the theme of the day. And so we will hear from our Duke Chapel Vespers Choir, but also the United in Praise Gospel Ensemble, which is a, an undergraduate group, and the Divinity School's Gospel Ensemble. And then our guest preacher for that is um, the Reverend Otis Moss III, who is the senior pastor at the Trinity United Church of Christ. So please stay for the whole day if you can, as we think about preaching, but also hear some wonderful preaching at the end of our time. So to jump off 
to begin this session. Um, we have several Divinity School students who I will acknowledge specifically at the end, but we also have two um, I call living legends um, in our midst to engage the rich tradition of preaching at Duke Chapel. We have the Reverend Dr. William C. Turner, Jr., who is the James T. and Alice Mead Cleland, um, Cleland Professor of the Practice of Preaching at Duke Divinity School and also a local pastor here at, um, at Mount Level Missionary Baptist Church. And then we also have Bishop William Willimon, Bishop in the United Methodist Church, former Dean of the Chapel for 20 years, one of the longest serving tenures here in that role, um, and also currently the Professor of the Practice of Christian Ministry at Duke Divinity School. These are two living legends. Many years of ministry, experience here at Duke, I'm sure lots of stories <laughs> that they could share about what it has meant to be in this space and to be at Duke um, as gospel proclaimers. So as a way to move into this conversation, first, let's welcome uh, Bishop Willimon, Dr. Turner. I want to pose one question and then the movement will be, excerpts will be read and we'll, have, we'll dialogue about them, another set and then another set. But Gardner C. Taylor, um, who actually died while he was in Durham in his 90s, the Dean of Preaching, um, once defined, called preaching, referred to it as sweet torture, right? Um, and so my, my question to you both um, is, as we think about the rich tradition of preaching here, is could you say a little bit what it has been like to preach in this pulpit here in, in Duke Chapel? Not sure <clears throat> why Will told me to start, but um, since he's my elder, <laughs> yes, you are by two years, I believe. All right, all right, go on. Go on. <laughs> since he told me to start, I will, and I'm sure my comment <laughs> will be rather different from his. Um, the truth of the matter is that I never really adjusted to preaching from this pulpit. And the reason is because spatially it is so different from where I preach. I will never forget either the first or the second time I preached from this chapel or from this pulpit. And I was told by the sound person, do not turn more than 45 degrees right. to the left or the right, <laughs> or you will not be heard. <laughs> um, and the pulpit sits high, and the preacher looks down, 
over the um, congregation, which is so spatially different from where I'm accustomed to, pre to preaching. And so I had to learn how to preach in a space. And I might add, it's good for me, I think, because um, over the course of time, I have, uh, I've said that, um, that now I know how to preach from the storefront to the cathedral. Um, and the, both the storefront and the cathedral need to hear the word of preaching. And uh, so it did me good to learn how to preach in a space so different where you have to count on uh, the preparation you make and uh, the certain knowledge that you have of what you articulate um, far more so than in the spaces I'm accustomed to preaching where you can, um, you can tell from the verbal responses, the facial responses, the bodily responses, uh, whether or not you're connecting with the people and they are understanding what you're saying. As a matter of fact, you know, where I'm, where I'm used to preaching, people actually tell you, make it plain, Reverend. <laughs> Stay right there. <laughs> or somebody will say to the congregation, follow him now. Because <laughs> he's going deep. Uh, but it has been, I would say, a good challenge for me to preach um, in a space where you know that somebody is going to be parsing and measuring every word you say and where there is nothing, you have nothing going for you but your voice. Uh, and your ability to articulate clearly, but it, it expands the range so that, uh, uh, that you are, uh, are compelled uh, to, communicate, um, to communicate clearly and sometimes uh, with people who are quite different from yourself. Let me just say one more word, and I'm going to stop, because if I don't, I'm, I won't. That is to say, it has really... Uh, how shall I say, inspired me to see over some 50 years how this pulpit has helped to guide the university through some extremely difficult times and difficult days. Um, there has been preaching from this pulpit when that was really the only leadership, the only leadership for the university during um, a period I can remember very clearly. Um, and the preaching from the pulpit, from this pulpit, from people who have come from uh, many different walks of life have really helped to guide the university spiritually, intellectually, uh, in terms of, uh, of, in terms of where the church should be moving and particularly how this section of the country should be moved by the gospel. There's been a considerable bit of, bit of tension, and I mean that in a good way, tension to help steer the thinking of people 
uh, in this part of the country and in this nation that has come from this pulpit and the uh, variety of preachers that have mounted this pulpit. I think that's maybe enough to say for the moment. I think it's interesting that Bill focused first on the building, and I, I think that's just right that uh, Gardner Taylor said this is, it's a sweet experience for a preacher to get to preach in such a, an amazing, uh, very distinctive building. Um, and um, that, that's also the hardest, the worst part of it, the painful part. Uh, this building is inspired by an age of church architecture in which there virtually was no preaching. Uh, the, the mass, uh, by the time of the Reformation, uh, you, you, you had maybe a, a little homily or something. So, uh, and this building particularly with the acoustical tile on the ceilings and all, you had like a three second delay, I think it is. And it means that when you're processing, uh, you start singing, and by the time you get to the front of the building, you're on a different beat altogether, and the choir learns to make adjustments. But with this kind of echo, I remember uh, early on we had a uh, the modern black mass choir that was active at Duke then uh, coming, and uh, the music director at that time told me, he said, by the way, just one note, said, sometimes... These gospel choirs will say, all right, everybody, let's clap, let's clap. And said, I have seen many a choir, you start clapping, and says what it becomes is just this cacophonous thunder rolling, and the choir will get off the beat. The people at the back are hearing something three seconds after the people in the front are hearing it, so don't, don't do that. Uh, don't, don't have them clap. Uh, and... Um, so, so the building, one of our slogans used to be, in any fight with this building, the building will win. So you better try to go with the building. And coming to this building from other church buildings, I guess I was so impressed with all the limitations of this building. It's, it's not a room built for the spoken word. The musicians love it, and well, they should, um, but... The spoken word is tough. I remember we had uh, we had a dance troupe in for some Sunday, and Tom Long was preaching here, and we built a stage at some considerable cost here, because one thing's in the building: the people in the back row cannot see you when you stand up on the top step here. A third of the congregation cannot see you, uh, even as high up as that is. It's too long. So you learn that. Uh, I always wanted to kind of come out of the pulpit and converse with people. Well, a third of the congregation can't see you. Uh, but I remember we had the stage up. Tom got up to speak, and he was completely inaudible. It was like speaking into a drum. Uh, all you could hear was echo. And he tried to do the best he could to slowly articulate. So, so that's a challenge. For me, I remember the the first thing I learned about preaching in this building was what a visual art preaching is. 
And, you know, preachers have these gestures and these ways of using their bodies to communicate. It doesn't work here. They, they can't see you. Um, and uh, I remember after a vigorous sermon that I preached, maybe with unusual vigor, because at the end these people came out and they said, wow, this has just been a surprising day for us. And I said, well, I hope surprising in a good way. He said, yeah, I said, you know, we were seated at the back. We thought you were black. You're not black. And I said, oh, wow, it's a long way back there, isn't it? Uh, but I said, that, that's a wonderful compliment to my preaching. Thank you. Uh, anyway, that, that, but, but the, it's also visual in the sense that I didn't realize how visual it was for the preacher. And you stand up there, and maybe you can see, like, the fifth row back to the tenth row. You can see some visual stuff. But it, it just feels like kind of throwing your voice out there and seeing where it lands. And there are people out there, but you can't, you don't know whether they're with you or against you or what. I remember James Forbes, uh, one of the great preachers who's preached here. And Forbes preached two sermons I'll never forget here and then the third time he preached here it his sermon was long and and it was it uh, one thing Forbes does you know he, he's an artist in the pulpit and he he's busy creating while he's there and he needs your help for it and it felt like he just couldn't get the sermon going and after it was over in my office he said that was terrible and I said, no, 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 Jim, it was, uh, that was, you, you're always so passionate and wonderful and thoughtful. And he said, no, 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 don't tell him, don't patronize me. And uh, he said, it was terrible. And he said, well, don't feel like you need to ever invite me back. I'm okay if I don't ever come back. And I said, Jim, you're one of my favorites. And he said, uh, they just sat there. I couldn't get anything going. And I said, uh, Jim, that... Uh, that may be a racially determined remark you just made. Uh, what you've just experienced is white people having a good time. Uh, that's actually as party as we get. Uh, and he said, really, really? Well, that's sad. That's very sad. I said, all right, all right. But um, the room is a challenge. And then I would also just echo, since we're in his echoing chamber, um, what Bill said, it's a weird congregation. Uh, a few years after I was here, Stanley Hiawas and I had a book called, did a book together, Preaching to Strangers, in which every preacher's nightmare, my sermons and Hiawas's analysis of my sermons. And uh, that, that, that was a challenge. I'd been used to having a flock, a congregation, some continuing relationship. And I noticed that I gravitated toward my, my choir. The choir became a congregation for me. Uh, I also would identify people and say, hey, haven't I seen you here before? Please, let me be your pastor uh, kind of thing. Uh, but that's a challenge. And it, it, I never really got into trouble in a sermon from my listeners accosting me of the steps. Uh, except from visitors, <laughs> people who didn't know me, and, and I looked like some kind of arrogant person standing up there spouting out all kind of stuff and had no relationship. 
My wife, in fact, when I came to Duke Chapel, she had her misgivings because she said to me, you know, you get away with murder in the pulpit because you're such a great pastor and you just visit the heck out of them into submission. Uh, you're not going to be able to do that at Duke Chapel. It's just going to be you and your voice up there. And I worried about that, which made all the amazing that I'm amazed how much the congregation will let you say and will affirm you in that. Uh, but like Bill said, it's a it can be a critical congregation because that's, that's kind of what academic people do. And I felt I was helped in preaching here because I'm an academic. And there was nothing that anybody has said to me as low and mean as nasty as what I have said to other academics because uh, that's kind of what we do, uh, and uh, and that kind of helped, because uh, in the local church, they do cut you a lot of slack, and they think, well, he sounds like a fool, but he's our fool, and and all. Uh, here, you do get, but, but you also get to see the gospel running loose, and you get people who hear something, and I say to them, hey, there's a three-second delay, and the echo's terrible, and and I don't have a great voice, and, uh, and, and you don't even know me, and you're just here for the day. And they say, well, yeah, I'm sorry. I heard God speak to me. Yeah. And, and it becomes, I've told my divinity school students, it's almost like a laboratory where you strip away all the stuff that pastors lean on. Like, I visited your mama when she was in the hospital. Remember me? I'm the one that put up with your deadbeat son. And, and tried to get him out of jail with you. you know, remember me? That gives me a right to say some stuff. We, well, in that pulpit, we're all visiting preachers, in a sense, with most of the congregation. And, which, which, and I think, therefore, it's a testimonial to the Word of God that God somehow finds a way to say something good. Mm. Thank you both. What we're going to do is... We want to hear how the gospel was loosed through um, various preachers here. People like James Forbes, who's not on our list today, but who has preached here and other luminaries. And so I'll invite the students to begin. And you have a sheet, I believe, with the order. And they may say their name, and then we'll hear the excerpt as we continue to explore how the gospel is expressed and has been expressed in this particular place throughout history. Billy Graham. And most of us are that way. We, we want something and we don't know what it is. We've come to the end of our lives and we are still unfulfilled. We haven't found that fulfillment. It's something that eludes us. You, you see, we were made for God. And without God, you'll never have total peace, total happiness, total joy. It's only found in relationship with God. David had found a strength and a resource that took him away from the pressures 
of life have you? Gardner Taylor, and when one goes outside the city gates and stands, or better still, kneels at the cross and looks up, in the darkness and the pain and the heartbreak of it all, in the heat and dust, in the groans and cries and curses and prayers of that Friday, realize that here is a price tag that God puts upon each of us. Calgary. We begin to see something of what we are and what we are meant to be. Kings and priests, I tell you, princes and princesses of the royal house, sons and daughters of God, born for the everlasting, made for the forever, and something more that it does not even yet appear what we shall be. Carter Hayward. Approaching God in fear and in trembling, Seeking clarification of God, we are met with a riddle. I am who I am. What is God saying to us? Could it be that God is not being evasive with us about who God is, but rather that God is being honest and clear, straightforward, and much to the point about who God is? Could it be that the point is that God is, in fact, evasive, elusive, not one to be pinned down, not one to be boxed into categories and expectations. God will be who God will be. God will hang on the gallows. God will inspire and fill and overwhelm a trembling handle. God will be battered as a wife, a child, a nigger, a faggot, and God will judge human discrimination, human prejudice with righteousness and with justice and with mercy. God will have a mastectomy. God will experience the wonder and the beauty of given birth. God will run a marathon and God will be handicapped. God will win and God will lose. God will be down and out, suffering and dying, and God will be bursting free, coming to life, for God will be who God will be. If this is so, then God is suggesting to the people of Israel and to us here in this chapel this morning that the very minute we think we have God, God will surprise us. As we search in the earthquake, the wind and the fire, God will be over there in the still, small voice. As we listen in the silence of our own meditations, God will be shouting protest on the streets. God is warning us, I think, that we had best not try to find our security in any well-defined concept or category of what is godly. For the minute we believe we're on to God, God is off again and calling us forth into some unknown space. Desmond Tutu. You are something that is precious. When God created us, God blew into us the breath of life. 
so that forever afterwards, each of us became a God carrier. Each one of us had to be treated with deep reverence. Each one of us was fragile. God carrying us in the palm of God's hands. Each one of us created in the image of God. Each one of us God's viceroy, God's partner. And so the evil of the system at home is not so much the pain and the anguish that it causes, great as these must be, as they indeed are. The awful thing about apartheid, the most blasphemous thing about it, is when it makes a child of God doubt that they are a child of God. One of the things that we, that stands out to me in all of these excerpts is the word God. <laughs> and I wonder um, if both of you could just say a little bit about what it means to, what it has meant throughout your life and ministry of preaching um, to speak about God on behalf of God. What does that mean for you? I think the bishop will go first this time. We will. Um, <laughs> the... Um, I think you, you put your finger on the challenging thing about being a Christian preacher is uh, God is more interesting than we are. Uh, people come to church not to hear about my dilemmas personally, but uh, to speak about God. Uh, I am impressed with the, with the people, that, the preachers you've highlighted, though, that uh, they all do speak of God, but the people you selected spoke of God from... Uh, through their own witness, um, Billy Graham is our. It was one of my great experiences to get to invite him and meet him and all. And I fully expected for him to be a. I mean, it was all prep for him to be a pompous ass. Uh, and he turned out to be one of the nicest people I ever met. Um, after the service, he thanked me for such a simple, straightforward worship service. And I said, "What?" Uh, and he'd been in Moscow and had gotten into a lot of trouble for saying that Jesus likes Russians. Um, and, um, but his sermon, as I remember, it was the most disordered. I, I couldn't find my way through it. The excerpt was probably the most coherent part of the sermon. But I loved it. And, and everybody else, uh, people were lined up before the service uh, all the way out there. Uh, the rabbi who works with Duke students um, said he and his wife, listen, we had it on regional television, and he said he and his wife said the spiritual power coming from that man through the television set to two Jews in Chapel Hill was just overwhelming. So, and of course I sat there thinking, Lord, please make me the kind of person who can stand up and say a disordered comment and people would feel spirit. Uh, Lord hasn't done that yet, but, um, and, and Desmond Tutu the same way. Desmond Tutu blew in those back doors. 
He was an hour and a half late. We were on television. Coretta Scott King had kept him too long in Atlanta. And he walked in and <clears throat> I welcomed him and the place erupted in applause. And I leaned over and said, uh, take as long as you want, but the TV goes off in 15 minutes. And uh, it was a powerful sermon. It wouldn't have been as powerful if it had not been spoken by Desmond Tutu. And then finally, Carter Haywood. Uh, some of you may not know her, but, but it was interesting. Her excerpt was on honesty. And Carter was, became a national figure because she was honest about her sexual orientation and suffered mightily for it. And for her to preach on being honest about God, so. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess my first response is um, that um, in each case, um, the um, the noun is God, capital G-O-D, uh, as contrasted with much of the preaching I'm accustomed to and that I do that is explicitly Trinitarian or that is deeply rooted in the stories of the Bible, the images, the descriptions, so that you will hear less G-O-D than the pictures of how God moves and works and operates in the world. Um, <clears throat> I cannot help when I listen to these excerpts or look at these names I just simply can't help from associating the preacher with the preacher's life um, and to look at how they all are able to say such what shall I call generic, global, uh, n maybe even nondescriptive things about God when I put it over against, um, you know, the life and the ministry, um, it's almost like I can hear the voices and uh, to the extent that I know the preacher, uh, that puts um, that puts tissue, that puts tissue. May I use the word pneumatic tissue? You may, you may. Yeah, on um, a generic term, G-O-D. Mm. Um, it's almost like you could exchange the words of Billy Graham with Gardner Taylor when you use the word God and the words that are in here, and yet you know where the life has been invested and how. And that puts a certain density and thickness into uh, the very use of, of, of language. Um, I see all of these excerpts as... Um, as struggling mightily, and I think admirably, to dig into the very material um, uh, and historical currents of life. Um, 
with, um, with, with, De with Desmond Tutu in the preaching or the very raising of the word apartheid locates him in his struggle. Um, and um, so when I, when, I, when I hear and read the excerpts, for me, um, it, goes, uh, it goes straight to, um, to the matters, the matters of life and how God is interstitched into the, um, to the life of the one who is preaching. And for me, that's what gives power um, to the word, to the word that is spoken. Can you say something before we move to the, the next um, excerpts? Because um, I have lots of questions, but I, I, there's one to pick, pick up on what you were just pointing to. Can you say something about the relationship between the life of the preacher and, and the sermon or the significance of the role that the life of the preacher plays in yeah. but our think, sermons? Yeah, I think that gets back to what, what, uh, what Will was talking about. Uh, say um, with um, with someone like um, with both, with especially with Billy Graham and Desmond Tutu, um, how the power of what is said is inseparable from the person who is doing the saying. Um, I think it was it, it 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 it's clear with 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 both of them. Um, you know, for Graham to move around the world and, you know, to preach in Moscow and preach in, uh, uh, on every continent and every globe, um, I think, you know, I know that there are some people who would, uh, have, who would have had him, uh, would have loved to see him invested more deeply into some of the material issues here in this country. But yet and still, when you look at his overall life and put it in perspective, there are some things about it that bespeak of that spiritual power that was heard or felt by the people who listened to him preaching. I mean, I can remember, for example, growing up uh, in the 50s, you know, every Sunday. That's one thing that the radio played in my house, the hour of decision. Yeah? Uh, and there was no getting around it. We did not, we only had one radio, and my mother controlled it. <laughs> one of the kind of thing, everybody had their own radio. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I heard him week in and week out. Um, and, um, you know, he was, uh, what shall I say, a bit more, more, more fiery in those days than, uh, than, than as an old man. Yeah, and so... Uh, that's that's what I that's what I remember. And I remember the uh, the voice coming through, just booming through the radio. Um, with Desmond Tutu, I don't know that the world has seen a more powerful, more spiritually powerful person in our lifetime. Um, uh, he turned the tide in a nation and set a high bar for. Um, for the rest of the world, where people would would deal with their with their demons, yeah, and so for his preaching to come out of that spiritually powerful life uh, gives to it 
a dimension that goes far beyond the words said, much less the words that are written. Um, he, in, he, he invested himself in a way that gave authenticity uh, to, to that preaching. And I might add um, that that's the kind of power that would be required. I didn't, didn't, do, didn't, didn't do much attending chapel while Will was being. Right? Because I, yeah. I was doing other things and preaching other places. Don't take it personally. Right, right. But I know, I know that from my day and time as a student, it took an extraordinary person to fill this chapel on Sunday morning, and especially to get students in. Um, and so um, I would say that the uh, power of the life would be indispensable um, and inseparable from the power of the preaching when it's coming from uh, a platform like this. Anything you want to add, Will, or we can no, move? Okay. That's right. Sure. One of the things Will has written, I remember, I mean, several years ago, an essay about preaching as the extension of the preacher's life. It was in a feshrift mm -hmm. for perhaps Henry Mitchell. Um, but also James Forbes has a quote in his Lyman Beecher Lectures, which is now in book form, has been in book form, The Holy Spirit in Preaching, where he talks about Jesus and he says that his life was the amen to the proclamation <laughs> of his lips. And so thinking about this integration is, is, is critical. Let, let's hear some more, the next grouping of, of excerpts and we'll have some more conversation. And we will have time for Q&A. We'll make time for your questions as well. Phyllis Tribble. Faith answers the fulfillment of life by radical reinterpretations. Radical decisions, radical actions, radical interpretations. Thus, in an ancient story, faith has spoken to the extremities of life, to the struggles of life, and to the fulfillment of life. Today, this story has traveled to Duke University Chapel to speak to us. To those living at the extremities of life, inundated by calamity, despair, and sorrow, with God present only as enemy, the story challenges us to make radical decisions, to risk without the promise that all things work together for good for those who God loves, to live without dependence upon support groups, customs, conventions, and institutions, to those confronting the daily struggles of life, the struggle for survival in a culture which would oppress or forget us, the story challenges us to take radical actions, 
to find resources for life within ourselves, within our environment, to require justice for the power of structure, to seek divine blessing through human agents, to those living in the fulfillment of life with both joy and the danger of comfort and happiness. The story challenges us to make radical reinterpretations of the status quo, to resist seduction for the sake of security, to transcend solutions which compromise integrity, to bring the unique meaning of our lives to the structures of society and hence transform them, to make the happy endings of our stories radical new beginnings. All these challenges come to us through the bold and brave decisions of women who themselves challenged the culture in which they lived. They worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling and thereby they participated in the work of God. Dare we do less? Paul Tillich. There is a non-Christian in every Christian. There is a weak one in every strong one. There is cowardice in every courage and unbelief in every faith and much hidden hostility in every love. Watchfulness means that the Christian never can rest on his being a Christian. That the strong one can never rely on his strength. He must rely on something else. Paul calls it faith. He asks the Corinthians to stand on firm ground on a ground which cannot be shaken when all other foundations are shaken. The ultimate, the divine ground. To stand on this ground means to stand in the faith. Howard Thurman.
It is good to remember that God has not let himself without a witness in our lives. Despite all the wanderings of our footsteps, despite all the ways by which we have sought to circumvent the truth within us, despite all the weaknesses of our spirits and our minds, despite all the blunders by which we have isolated ourselves from our fellows, are proven unworthy of the love, the trust, the confidence by which again and again all our days are surrounded. Despite all these things, it is good to remember that God has not let himself without a witness in our spirits and in our lives. And is it not fear of life that ruptures the bond of trust in life. My sons, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness basically restores trust. Jesus is our atonement at one mint. Our reconciliation to life. Forgiveness is not basically for moral shortcomings, for all moral shortcomings are really the result of cowardice, recklessness, hopelessness, expressions of our loss of trust. Sin, therefore, is not so much immorality as unbelief. It's opposite not virtue, but faith. And faith is basically a trust that we can go on living because there is a personal and purposeful power underlying and so purveying the world that it gives us a will to live stronger than our wish to die. The breath of life is trust. The breath of life is love. The abyss of love is deeper than the abyss of death. That was William Sloan Coffin Jr. from that last excerpt. As we listen, this is a listening session as well because preaching is not just speaking, it's also listening and speaking, right? Listening is, in many ways, the first task of any preacher in silence. Um, as we, even from the first group of excerpts and to this, um, there's a, a couple of questions I'm gonna throw to you, but they're really one question. <laughs> um, because some of the things that are said, um, and obviously we have the years, so they're in historical context, are 
at least could be deemed risky. Um, and I'm thinking about the relationship um, between courage as a preacher and wisdom. You know, have you ever wanted to say something in the pulpit and you chose not to for a variety of reasons? Um, are there some things that are just off limits in the pulpit in terms of what you will say and, um, and not say? Have you ever taken a risk, what might be deemed a risk in the pulpit? And, and how did it go? Um, and so preaching is a risky ministry or can be uh, risky. It was risky for Jesus, obviously. But for the both of you, with, and even in relation to any of these that we've heard thus far, could you say a bit about the riskiness of preaching and how that's played out in your own um, tasks, our own ministry, in terms of choosing certain things to say or not to say? Or uh, William Sloan Coffin, whom we heard uh, through Corey, um, was the first preacher I wanted to invite here because I wanted to, uh, when I went to Yale as a student, uh, Coffin was instrumental on my going to divinity school for that reason. You mentioned about risk. I just, I remember when he said in a sermon uh, of all the pornographic books ever written, of all the dirty, filthy literature ever published, uh, none of them are as dirty as one minute in the mind of General William Westmoreland. And I said, he was leading us in Vietnam. And I said, wow, that's good. Uh, I want to do that, which tells you about something about my personality as a student. But uh, I, I, I would say these excerpts, to me... Uh, but they sound a bit dated in that they're not like uh, Bill Turner mentioned he his tradition you connect us with the story uh, these sermons are all that we just heard are not narrative in any really explicit way and I, part of the dated quality is uh, to me the the risk they're taking is I'm going to take the risk of saying something profound and something uh, to the left, and I'm going to say that in an intelligent way. And, and that's a risk worth taking. Um, but are we in a situation now where the risk is standing up and saying something Christian? <laughs> you know, something that says, here's an absurd story from the life of Jesus, and I actually believe it's true in some deep sense. In a sense, that... We may be in a time now where these sermons from the 70s are not, we've got different risk. And um, uh, I just, I would have preachers come up to me and say, oh, I wish I were at Duke Chapel. Boy, being at a university, you can say anything you want to. And I said, gosh, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like that uh, because it feel you're you're constrained, and you're not only constrained by you. You don't want to piss people off, but you're also constrained uh, by Jesus Christ. And there are just certain things 
that he will let you say, and there are other things that you're not permitted to say, and uh, through him and his good news. So, so that to me is the risk that's most interesting, but how would you characterize it, Bill? Um, I would say that um, in these excerpts, if you have a sense, again, if you have a sense of who these people are and um, how their lives are um, <clears throat> interstitched or intersected with their times, you can get a hint of what they were talking about. Um, and I think what you see one right after the other is their struggle for those intersections with the faith and the issues with which people were wrestling in that day without naming them. In some cases, you will actually, you know, you can probably find, you know, some explicit references. Um, you know, I, I, I remember, I remember how these preachers who were listed in this section really helped me to work through um, what shall I call it? Existential issues. You know, and, 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 and one that triggers that is, um, is Paul Tillich. We've heard the name um, uh, uh, Jim Forbes mentioned several times. Um, I remember how, how he called himself a Tillichian Pentecostal. Um, and the first time I read Paul Tillich, you know, I said, hmm, I've heard this before. And that is because young African-American preachers of that generation really made great use of Tillich to help navigate the existential angst of the old-time religion and the contemporary struggle looking for models, looking for ways in which to bring together the passion of the faith with the obvious needs of the world. Um, and so, you know, there's a certain dialectical quality that's reverberating in him, but it is picked up in nearly every preacher of that generation uh, who was seminary trained yeah, but socially conscious. Now, you take someone like Howard Thurman, and um, he is really uh, one of the great mystics and mentors, um, not so much by, by virtue of his preaching style, but the way in which he pressed, pressed, pressed deeply into the, the painful and hurtful humus uh, of, of life. So there is a world of witness that's lurking underneath um, uh, these preachers uh, that comes forth in a way that um, 
would be extremely helpful to um, both undergraduate and seminary students who, who wanted to hold their faith together with some deep and painful questions that were uh, rearing their heads uh, in those times. And so you get a, you're something of a, of a pilot. One thing I noticed with all these preachers is uh, a seriousness. Mm -hmm. You mentioned depth, but there's a lot of silly preaching going on okay. uh, today where the preacher stands up and says, I'm going to give you three biblical ways to have a happier marriage. Yeah. Well, that's impossible. Because <laughs> uh, there Take aren't any in the more Bible. More than three. More but, than but three. says Jesus gives a rip about a happy marriage. And... Uh, with, with all these, uh, I remember the woman who told me that she remembered Paul Tillich's sermon here. And she said it was one of the most deeply moving experiences of my life. And I said, what was there about it was deeply moving? She said, I didn't understand a word of it. I have no idea what he was talking about. But I knew it was really serious business. And there's a lightness, mm -hmm. a superficiality abroad that, these guys, I think, uh, uh, jerk you up and think, wow, this is when it was the preacher felt an obligation to, to go down to the deeper end of the pool and dive in. And so I, I just noted that. Yeah. Let's hear the last round of, of excerpts, and then we will dive in together a bit more and then open it up to questions uh, for you that you might have. Rosemary Radford Ruther. Christians today tend to forget that mainstream Protestants and Catholics alike drawing on the Augustinian tradition, continued to justify slavery well until the 19th century. A hierarchical model of the church was closely connected with a hierarchical model of society. Now, in contrast to this view of religion as sacred canopy, as the blessing of established order, there is deeply rooted in scripture an alternative perspective. In the prophets, and in Jesus particularly, religion is often seen as socially unsettling and even a subversive power. God is seen as judging the rich and the powerful of their injustice and vindicating the poor and the oppressed. The word of God confronts the established order and its leaders as contrary to God's will. And it envisions a new society, an alternative order that will arise after a divine revolution in history. 
a time when all creatures will be in peace and harmony with one another. In the words of the Magnificat, the prayer of Mary, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says that Christ will come to put the mighty down from their thrones and raise up the humble. Peter's story. And we have watched with the world as Nelson Mandela walked to freedom. We have seen the incredible sight of Mr. Mandela and others sitting down with the key members of State President de Klerk's cabinet. It's as if God grown suddenly impatient with our false gods of totalitarianism and racial oppression, has dealt history a sudden blow to set huge sections of humanity on a new course. Certainly, certainly where I come from, my friends, the tide is now flowing irresistibly toward justice. Now, I am not naive, and I know that there will be eddies. Sometimes there will be a contrary wind whipping the surface, but beneath that surface the flow is strong and it is certain. And so I ask you to celebrate with me a God who turns the tide. This is no passive God. This is no spectator of human folly. This is a God who interferes with history. That's the God you worship. But God's providential intervention is no mere whim on his part. When God turns the tide, it does not happen without our participation. Jose Minguez Bonino. The whole economic system of our world is cracking at the joints. The growing number of unemployed in the world the mounting, unpayable debt of third world countries. We simply have not been able or willing or we have not had the courage to organize life on earth on human terms. We don't seem to be able to imagine international relations otherwise than a balance of terror 
a precarious balance which cannot last long, which will not survive any major crisis. We live in a threatened world. We're not only comfort, culture, spiritual values, but life itself. The very stuff of humanity is threatened. What is perhaps even more alarming is the strange paralysis, the lack of initiative. We seem to be standing mesmerized by the sight of our danger, walking automatically closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. As we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, I think we are not merely invited to be grateful for the successful exodus. The leaving of your fathers, the pilgrimage. But to be ready for a new exodus, a new pilgrimage, a pilgrimage in history rather than geography, a pilgrimage in time rather than space, an exodus a leaving towards a new day in history of humankind, towards the creation of new conditions of human life, towards the conquest of human freedom and dignity, towards the reversal of a road to death and destruction that we are walking today. C. Eric Lincoln. The significant journeys we make in this life may have little to do with geography, but they are the journeys from darkness to light, from implacability to reasonableness, from toleration to acceptance, from destruction to support, from hatred to love, from bitterness to appreciation. The road to Damascus is long and uncertain. It is filled with possibilities for evil, Paul's original intent, and possibilities for good. Pray that on your way to do evil, you may be blinded by the light of your own insufficiency, that you, like Paul, may hear a voice that calls you back to the responsibility of being what you are and what you can become. There is a world out there, but it is still to be won. It is a world of men and women in the mass, 
but it is also a world of human individuals. Human individuals locked in an intimate struggle against the bars. And even though we preen and we prance and we prate with the doubtful confidence of jesters and fools, in our hearts we know all too well that unless we learn to live for each other, we may not live at all. James Cone. Here then is the meaning of the resurrection. The resurrection is the good news that the slaves have been set free. If the cross means that Jesus is with the victims of injustice in their suffering, then the resurrection means that the victims share in Jesus' victory over evil. Jesus' victory becomes their victory. The oppressed can now know that Apostle Paul knew that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. This affirmation in Romans 8.18 is not a pious acceptance of earthly injustice, but rather is a revolutionary cry against it. Because of Jesus' victory over suffering, we can now fight for the freedom that have been given in his resurrection. The faith to fight is a denial of the resurrection. That's, this is what the black slaves had in mind when they sang, Weep no more, Martha. Weep no more, Mary. Jesus rides from the dead. Happy morning. Now, if the contemporary church in our society, or even in any society for that matter, is to be the church of this Jesus Christ, it must proclaim the liberation of the oppressed of the land. The church must not only proclaim liberation, it also must be an agent of liberation. This and nothing else is what the gospel is all about. Peter Gomes, you remember that great line of Mark Twain who said, it's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that worry me, it's the things I understand perfectly clear that worry me. And these are among the things that you understand and are perfectly clear. You are to love your enemies. You are to turn the other cheek. You are to lend without expectation of return. There it is, square in the middle of the gospel, hardly ambiguous at all. The impossible ethic in, what, in that this is what it is, is the only one that counts. The gospel is about light, manifestation and disclosure. Perversity is the human condition more or less, and providence is the business of God by which we see our way through the darkness and in that light. And by that light, wonder of wonders, even the impossible is both possible and plausible. Bernice King. Do not what's popular, maybe because I am a vain person. Do not what's safe, 
Because maybe I'm a coward. But do the right thing. Because conscience dictates to you. Because unconditional love stirs in you. Because the spark of the divine lives in you. Do the right thing. This last section of excerpts, many of them are, are calling the, the church to action. Um, and we're, we're getting ready to, to open it up for your questions. But I want to ask one question, just be very brief um, with the answers. How, how can our preaching today move um, the church to be an agent of liberation, to use Cone's language. Well, I actually had two or three reactions to this last uh, set of excerpts. Uh, and it's right, right, okay. right in line with your question. Mm -hmm. It's um, almost like in this last excerpts, the gloves come off. Mm -hmm. You know, the boxers <laughs> take off the gloves <laughs> and hit with the fish. <laughs> um, and it, it reminds me of a question that I once heard Charles Long ask. Charles Long asked, he says, what makes you think we're all serving the same God? Mm. He said, who told you that the God of the slave master was the same as the God of the slave. And what makes you think we're serving the same God? And, um, you know, and I've had to wrestle with that sometimes. And I think, you know, that's, that's sort of the trajectory that we find in this, um, in these, uh, these last, um, you know, um, excerpts. And I think it forces back, forces us back to the question you raised, or mm -hmm. Will made a, a minute ago about, um, but, but preaching, preaching being a serious undertaking and a serious enterprise, um, and we have this very serious taking um, in this last set of excerpts. One more question that, that has that lurked in my mind here recently. You know, um, if you look at uh, that passage in Luke four eighteen and following, you know, what good what could God say to us? that actually would make us mad and want to throw Jesus off the cliff. Uh, that, that's what was in his first sermon. And it seems to me like in this last excerpt, we're moving, you know, to that sort of prophetic confrontation where God can actually make you mad. And the madness is an, is an impetus to action? Well, it's an impetus to force you off the um, fence. You either going to say amen or you're going to throw Jesus off the cliff. <laughs> Will, what, what do you have comment on? You know, uh, I think preaching works. It motivates people. It moves people to march and action. 
not simply because of bold preaching, but also because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just we got a God that just loves to tear stuff up and loves to uh, uh, bring down the mighty from the thrones. And so it's reasonable respect. And, and, and I must say, uh, I would talk a good line by saying, you know, preaching is outmoded. Uh, this is a university. Nobody listens to preaching anymore. And then right at the depth of my despair, uh, somebody would come out of Duke Chapel, often a student, and say, okay, my life has changed. I'm not going to learn Spanish. I'm dropping out of Duke because this is all pointless, and I'm going to Honduras uh, to work in the revolution. And now watch, and, and I would say, uh, hey, kid, um, you're obviously not well defended against this. Uh, that was a metaphor. Uh, I'm just speaking in generalities. Uh, and it, it, it's almost scary when your word becomes God's word and somebody is moved by it. So when preachers, it's interesting, the stake preachers have in saying preaching is irrelevant. And yet people keep staggering out and say, well, I'm sorry. It wasn't the best sermon in the world, but it was like God called my name put the finger on me. And, and so I think it, it does. I, it, one of the Moral Monday demonstrations, I met someone and he said, I've had a clerical collar on. He said, oh, you're a priest? And I said, well, I'm a Methodist, but yeah, sort of. And uh, so we were talking about why I was there and why he was there. And he said, uh, well, I'm here because uh, I'm a Baptist, and our preacher told us, are you just going to sit there and watch North Carolina go down the toilet? And uh, he said, it, it kind of got me moving. And I thought, wow, how old are you? And he said, 22. And I said, wow, that, that happened in a sermon by a Baptist. <laughs> what are your questions? There is a mic set up. We have a few minutes for questions. I should also say at the break, there are some refreshments in the basement of the chapel, and so you can continue the conversation. That breaks from 2 to 2.30 before the next session starts at 2.30 in here, so you can continue the conversation. But do you have any questions? And the mic, please come forward to the mic. So a crisp, clear question, not necessarily comments that might turn into a sermon, but we... we. Anyone have any a question you want to ask about the archive or of any of the excerpts or something you want to pose to Dr. Turner or Dr. Willimon? Question about preaching, anything. Uh, thank you, Duke Chapel. Thank you, Dean Powery. Um, earlier you all mentioned the seriousness of preaching. Uh, how do we maintain the integrity and the seriousness of preaching in a society that seems to retreat from words and facts? That's a good question. That's what that means, that pause. You know, I remember being with a group of uh, preachers. Oh, let me, oh, yeah. one second, Will. So, Everyone, um, the question is, how do you maintain the seriousness of preaching in an age where uh, truth and facts might be questionable? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, I, I have faith, and it, it, it's faith, that, that people eventually turn from lies, that the Holy Spirit's work at work before I get there. And I remember being up in the Massachusetts, the big pastor's convocation, and they were basically talking about how preaching is old-fashioned, nobody wants to hear this today. And this was about 15 years ago. And, and I said, you know, that, that could be true. However, it looks like America is getting to ready to elect a man who's had very little work experience. Uh, he's young. Uh, I think we're going to elect him on the basis that he talks real good. Uh, and that maybe we, we have this need, this hunger. Faith comes through hearing. And in our better moments, maybe we're capable of hearing the truth. And uh, uh, somebody comes out of church last Sunday and says I was offended because I got political in the sermon. And I said, no, no, I can get more political than this. And uh, she says, well, we're tired of hearing it and all. And I said, well, why would I care? I mean, come on and tell me I said something that Jesus would disagree with or something that's not biblical, but the fact that you get made uncomfortable. And right behind her, as I was uh, unloading on her for unloading on me, somebody stood there and said, I just want to say there was a church full of people here today desperate for the truth. So, yeah, um, um, when I hear a question like that and think upon the answer, um, I can't help but think of people who are clinging on to life, mm -hmm. um, who are holding on to a son or a daughter, who are struggling desperately to make sense out of the world we're living in and who are wringing their hands over the recent election and the performance of the new administration. Um, people struggling to make sense out of life and uh, to, to try to have uh, some sense, if you will, of how to, how to hold on and keep on living. Um, and if you, if, you, if you touch and intersect with people in um, those kind of crisis, uh, crisis moments, um, you know, it will um, it'll send you back to your knees and to your study and to your computer and all this kind of thing. Um, and, and if I would be honest, that's what keeps me going. <laughs> you know? Yes, um, people whose lives are on the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, there, is there one more question if someone has? Well, let's keep the, the conversation going this afternoon. I know people are in and out. Uh, homiletics comes from the word homiletos, which means conversation. So what we're doing today is really engaging in homiletics, in conversation with one another. And I want to uh, first say thanks 
to our two conversation partners here, uh, Drs. Turner and Willimon. And I also want to thank um, our student um, readers, um, Aisha Benton, Dontavius Saunders, Todd Campbell Jr., Bethany Schmall, Elizabeth McManus, and Corey Wilkins, as well as Peace Lee, um, who was really helped put all of this together and is our, one of our THD students in homiletics, as well as Adrian Cook, who is our uh, the project manager, manager for the, the digital um, project, digitizing of all of the Duke Chapel sermons. Um, they really put in a lot of work to put this together, to work on that archive and to make this, this particular uh, conversation possible. So can we thank everyone that has participated? So a, a couple of housekeeping um, items. If you're staying, for those that might not be familiar with the chapel or the, or the Divinity School in terms of the spacing. So first of all, downstairs at each break, there are refreshments, coffee, etc., savory foods um, down in the basement downstairs. You can get there by going through those doors and then just keep going down and someone will guide you if you get lost. Um, and so there's food down there. Keep the conversation going. Also, there are two restrooms downstairs in the chapel. If you're, and there's also restrooms on the first floor of the Divinity School if you go inside the Divinity School and, and then in the Page Auditorium on this side um, downstairs. So restrooms and food. Also, the Divinity Bookstore, if you're not familiar with the Divinity School, uh, the bookstore which would be, I don't know what level it is over there, but if you walk into the bookstore on the side, or walk into the Divinity School on the door closest over here, closest to what they call Goodson Chapel inside, go down the stairs, one level, hang a right, and the Divinity um, Bookstore is there, and they will be open until 6 p.m. Uh, today. They've extended their hours um, um, for, for you. So please do that. Let me just close this session with one sentence from the sermon excerpt from William Sloan Coffin. And then we'll take our break. 2.30, the next panel begins. So he says, The abyss of love is deeper than the abyss of death. Let that be our reminder. See you again at 2.30. Thank you for being here. <laughs>